Hi, I'm Charlie Burgess. I'm the Editorial Director of Editorial Intelligence, and I'd like to welcome you to this uh, first event that we're holding at 10 o'clock rather than at breakfast or in the evening, and I think it shows that we've got our work-work balance worked out pretty well on this one with a full house. Thanks all for coming. Uh, Work-life balance, luxury or necessity is today's subject. Uh, we've got a full uh, panel and a full house, and I think we're going to have a fascinating discussion. Uh, editorial intelligence, as you know, we monitor Britain's commentariat, as we call it, and we also run events like this. And I'm sure you're all aware of us, and if you're not, there's stuff on your seats that will tell you about us. Uh, I'd like to thank Cass Business School for uh, their association with us and the fact that we are here in their building. And I'd also like to thank Management Today, who are associated with this event, and I'd like to introduce Matthew Greither, who is going to run today's show. Matthew. Thanks a lot. Um, well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Matthew Greither, and I'm the editor of Management Today. And I think we wrote our first piece about work-life balance, I think, about 15 years ago. Um, and we did a number of research projects towards the end of the... 1990s and into this century and I have to say over, over the last few years the subject seems to have gone a wee bit quieter so it's, it, it's a terrific thing that Julia's done her book and brought it to um, everyone's attention again who, who might have sort of filed it in a, in a, in a back drawer somewhere um, but I was thinking about it myself at a quarter to six this morning um, I, it was very interesting looking at the, the, the panel biographies where, where Julia was sort of playing a game, sort of trying to out, everyone trying to outdo each other for the complexity of their existences. I got a 14-year-old son, um, a 16-month-old, and another bun in the oven at the moment. And um, my 16-month-old is, a, is a, a, fab, a fantastic nursery in Coin Street, just on the South Bank, and. Um, as with all those good nurseries, he gets, a little, he gets a little daily report, which is sort of handwritten by the people who look after him, where it says how long he's slept for and what he's been playing with and all the rest of it. And I saw to my alarm yesterday evening when I picked him up, it said constipated, question mark on it. <laughs> and I can assure you, at a quarter to the six this morning, he was anything but constipated <laughs> and assured you his nappy. Um, so, anyway, en enough of en the kind of the grosser aspects of it. I'd like to introduce our first speaker this morning, Dr. Nicola Brewer, who's Chief Executive of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Um, before um, Nicola starts, the other thing I've been asked to tell you is that the whole thing's being podcast, which is really great, so people will be able to listen to it online afterwards. So anything you're saying is on the record, but don't let that hold you back with the fullness and frankness of your views. So, Nicola, please... Let's take it away. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's really quite a loaded topic, this one, isn't it? And I think it's loaded both personally, professionally, and professionally. So let me start um, with, with the personal, though I'm not going to compete with Matthew and his story about nappies. Um, my own feelings about work-life balance uh, seesaw hugely. Uh, sometimes I laugh about it. Uh, I had a mentor once who said to me, rather irritated one day, Nicola, will you stop going on about work-life balance? For you, work is a huge part of life, and you know, just, just get used to it. Um, I also laughed when I read Rachel jo Johnson's comment in the Sunday Times last weekend when she said sometimes she thinks that work-life balance sounds a bit like a low-calorie yogurt. Um, but when I was looking uh, at Julia's book, 
And I started to look at it at 8 p.m. last night when I just got back in from taking the children to the doctors and I had only ticked off two and a half out of the seven items on my to-do list for that day. I went through it looking at the top tips and I swallowed them in a single sitting going, yes, yes, I remember that. So seesaw absolutely resonates with, with me. It's just what it feels like. Um, in the Equality and Human Rights Commission, we started thinking about how do you fit work into your life rather than squeezing your life around your work early last year. And it's been about six months since we launched what we called uh, an initiative, um, Working Better. And what we wanted to do was look into the uh, challenges facing people at work. And I'm sure Justine will say something about this. We talked a lot about the F word and about the C word, and that's flexibility and choice. And I guess we also talked about the M word, which is about mothers as well. We managed to um, kick off a bit, of a, a bit of a media storm because I think that suggesting that ever greater maternity leave without increased rights for fathers was having a unintended consequence on how women were perceived in the workplace. And that seemed to be both a pretty controversial finding, but also to, again, to speak to quite a lot of women's experience and, and that in the business place as well. So it was a really inconvenient truth that we felt that we needed to talk about. You fast forward about six months, and the issue of work-life balance is still uh, big news. So, Roger Zidati, the French justice minister, her decision to work, to return to work five days after a cesarean, I have to say I had some um, uh, personal memories about that, um, had a lot of women scratching their heads, and I think they weren't just asking themselves, how on earth did she get back into that French tailored suit so quickly? And then... Nick Clegg has called for a full year of paternity leave for fathers, and I think that will be seen as quite a radical jump for some, given the reluctance of some fathers in taking just the two weeks of paternity leave they have the right to at the moment. And I think that the issue attracts quite so much coverage because uh, everybody feels they're affected, or a huge amount of people feel they're affected. Obviously, the debate often focuses on parents, but one of the things that I wanted to do and to make clear about through our Working Better initiative was it's not just about women and it's not just about fathers, it's not just about parents. It's relevant for an it being how do you work smarter. And I'll come on to the, the F word, the flexibility, in just a second. Um, it's about people who might be caring for an older relative. It's about uh, a disabled person who might be wanting to enter or re-enter the workforce. It's about an older person who might want to wind down, downshift, um, their working hours rather than fall off a cliff edge when they hit, when they hit 60. Uh, the, the, the one bit that I really thought about in terms of luxury versus necessity is six months ago we launched that initiative. What does it feel like now when there's a recession out there and more and more people are fearful of redundancy? Does that mean that the talk of working better is really a bit self-indulgent or indeed luxurious when a lot of people would settle with just working. But I think, and I think that the Commission's work is, is going to be showing as we roll out the second phase of this initiative, is that hard economic times make it even more important to look at how we organise work. In good times, employers can afford to lose staff, to have lots of staff turnover and maybe pay the recruitment and the training costs to replace them. But in bad economic times, redundancy costs money. Redundant workers lose out. Employers lose skills they'll need when the upturn comes. 
and really genuinely flexible approaches to flexible working can, and I emphasise the word can, offer a winnable solution all round. So there are already examples of some employers offering different work patterns in tough times, and I think the government is trying to encourage that. And when I talk about flexible working, what I mean often is informal agreement to make relatively minor adjustments to how, when and where work is done. I am not talking about part-time, low-status, low-paid work for women with children, which is what flexible working is often put in that box. So I think that what we have to do in the Commission is really work with business to make sure that these working better ideas make sense to them. They tell us that flexible working can work for business, but to remember it doesn't always do so. And one of the things I really liked in in Julia's book, um, two of her tips are admit that some jobs can't be as flexible as others and be aware of your employer's needs as well as your own. So I just finish up by saying that relatively few men or women at the moment have the luxury to choose the, the mix of work and rest of life that they want. I would like the choice of genuinely flexible working to be open to many more people. So I think I'd say that getting the balance right between work and life is a tough necessity particularly the way that the workplace is currently structured, you seesaw from how, in, in terms of how you feel about whether you've got the balance right. And what I'd like is to see it as a common luxury, like mobile phones. Nicola, thank you. Um, and our second speaker is Professor Stephen Palmer, who's director of the Coaching Psychology Unit at City University. Stephen. Yeah, thank you. That's very interesting. Um, very echoey here. But, uh, my particular interest is in stress and hence the, the work-life balance as well. And the, the stress side is interesting because of course the statistics, we know much more about the statistics when it comes to stress as opposed to work-life balance statistics and things. How many people here have never suffered from stress? Just put your hand up if I can see you. Okay. I, I think with the credit crunch it's going to change. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think that's quite interesting in itself. Um, I'm also very aware here, as I look around the audience, that it's obvious to me that uh, men don't seem to have a problem with work-life balance, because there's very few men actually in the audience here. What, 10%, is it? A rough guess there. So that, that may say something in itself. Or they don't make time for coming to events like this to find out more about work-life balance. Maybe that's another issue too. But uh, just looking back at the stress aspect, uh, if the health and safety executive estimate roughly between 15 to 18% of us would report very high levels of stress or extremely high levels of stress. And they estimate this is costing us about £9.6 billion a year, which is a fair bit of money. Um, And I think if we improve the work-life balance, we may be a little bit less stressed. It's interesting that the Sainsbury's Centre report is slightly different. Their figures are more like 25 billion mental health issues it's costing us as a nation. And £25 billion a year is a hell of a lot, I think, especially going through a credit crunch. Now, when you actually look at some of the things that's interfering with our work-life balance and also our balance of work in the workplace, we've talked about demands, excessive demands in the workplace, and email seems to be one of them. Uh, most of the clients I see who are stressed, uh, in the old days, they'd report about maybe only having about 50 emails a day. How many of you get more than 75 emails a day now? 
And yet, notice that it's a third, at least a third of you, and I'm, I'm excluding spam from that, at least a third of you are dealing with that a day. And how do we deal with this? Well, we get up earlier in the morning. We may start working from home, turn our laptops on. Once upon a time, we were given the laptop to work at home as a privilege, a company privilege. We took it home. They didn't turn the server off, did they? Only one or two companies turn the server off at 6 o'clock in the UK. Most servers stay on, so you can still email your colleagues overnight, anywhere on the planet, and actually keep on this poor work-life balance, as I see it. The other thing is interesting, if you look at statistics, is actually thousands of mobile phones end up in their rightful place, I think, down the toilet. It's amazing. Now, how many of you would have actually answered the, telephone, the mobile phone when you've been sitting on the toilet? Or in the, in the loo. Now, notice not very, very few hands are going up there. But in reality, I, I think there's probably more than that, because there's tens of thousands of them end up down the toilet. And I, I don't know about blackberries. So it's interesting when you actually look statistically. It's amazing that this country keeps statistics on, most, on so many different things. So what are we doing as a nation? Heaven knows. But I, I think we've got our balance slightly you know, out, out of kilter there. One of the things in the workplace, I do think, is the long hours culture. And I also work in countries overseas. When I work in Sweden and I'm giving lectures about stress, people just laugh. They see it often as the bridge disease. We don't work long hours here in Sweden. That's your problem. And it's interesting how, as a nation, we actually may uh, work longer hours, and we should do. And I actually blame us to a certain extent because we've rewarded our employers' bad behaviour. Over 10 or 15 years, organisations have downsized to increase profits. And what does the average British employee do? They work longer hours. And that's how we end up rewarding our employers' bad behaviour. We consistently make up reach up to the mark, do the work they want us to do, but in fact it ends up with lo us working longer hours and maybe starting the day earlier. And it becomes quite difficult. When I listen to about Rob Peston and how he's handling the family plus doing his interviews and things all at the same time, it, it sounds quite tough for some people when you've actually got a family to manage as well. Now, when you actually come to or attempt to measure... Uh, work-life balance indexes. It's quite difficult because it's really a, a subcomponent what we call a quality of life construct. That's quite difficult because there's no agreement what, what that construct means. And if you go to the Australian Centre uh, on Quality of Life, they list over 800 different psychometric tools for measuring some aspect of quality of life. So it's no wonder there's a kind of disagreement about what we're talking about, especially when we're talking about work-life balance or imbalance, what we're probably talking about, uh, I think. Now, if you think the average American employee, those left in jobs now, uh, work more than 400 hours extra than the average European, uh, there's also a cultural aspect here, I think, when it comes to work-life balance. Now, on top of that, when you actually consider government interventions, now, I, I think the French government, it was a fantastic experiment introducing the 35-hour working week, because you can actually start seeing what the impact of actually, now, obviously, they did it for economic reasons, the idea of increasing employment, but in reality, um, what did happen was slightly different to that, because introducing the 35-hour working week, you'd think that would improve our work-life balance. What it actually did was actually increase the number of employees changing jobs. That was one aspect. Uh, this is according to the IMF research report on this. And um, there was more transitions from large companies to small companies. Those that stayed in large companies became more dissatisfied because they had to were restricted by the 35-hour working week earlier than the, the smaller companies, it seems. So there's a different level of satisfaction. And the aggregate level of employment didn't actually change. 
And on top of that, there was this increased job turnover. So in fact, it didn't actually achieve what the government wanted it to do uh, financially and employment-wise, and also didn't necessarily change much on the work-life balance, which wasn't an intention anyway. There was a news item, though, which I picked up on. It was one of those, I think it was slipped through in one of these Radio 4 programmes, you just listen to in the background if you're studying at home, whatever. And uh, it was about hotel room occupancy had actually increased, and they put it down, they inferred the increase due to more people having an affairs or having time for having an affairs, actually, in France. Now, whether that's true or not, but that's an interesting news item I picked up on. Now, the personal aspects I see with my clients when it comes to, to uh, the work-life balance is guilt, self-induced guilt. There's so much of it now. It's interesting, as a psychologist, we talk about personality disorders, mental health disorders like generalised anxiety disorder, phobias and the lot. We haven't actually got one called generalised guilt disorder, but quite frankly, I think we ought to have one now because so many people seem to be suffering from guilt for so many reasons. Um, one of them is trying to be that good parent, very difficult being that good parent, and good parents want to introduce quality time for their children. It's interesting how the quality time and some of the things I picked up from Julia's book is fascinating, Julia's book. The tips are fantastic. If you're a busy person, just go for the tips. You've got no other time to read the book. The tips are fantastic if you're very busy. But one of the things I picked up was quality time. And uh, also I, I do at times assist families working with children. And I think one of the issues is that the average good parent wants to bring in quality time, understandably so, but often that quality time is from the parent's viewpoint, between 6.15 and quarter to seven. From the child's viewpoint, it's when the child wants you to give them quality time. They may come home from school, but they're not interested in your questions about what they did at school. They want to get on and do something completely different, whether it's watch a TV programme or just uh, chill out and play some kind of game. And But you're parents enforce the quality time because they want to be good parents and in fact they don't always get the reaction they want from their child so it can actually trigger more guilt in those perfectionistic uh, parents now uh, the other obsession it seems which actually interferes with work life balance it appears to me is parents really trying to be really trying to fit their child into every possible event out of school in school whatever for the best of the child but actually it doesn't give the child much chilling out time so I, I think it's important for parents to get a balance in this now I can say this but at the same time um, my, my children are adults now and uh, I always wondered why my daughter said sometimes she has difficulty balancing her work life and being very effective on achieving her work goals when she's working at home. Well, for the first time in five years or so, um, my wife and I said, OK, we, we look after the children, the three children, uh, this was last week, you go on a nice holiday just by yourselves, chill out. Well, it was a bit of a life experience for me because starting the day at 6.30 with some child, two children wanting to have stories read at them at that time, and well, understandably so, they're keen to see you, then taking one to school, then taking the other one to soccer tots, I must admit, my working day, I didn't achieve as much as I expected to that day, staying at home looking after the grandchildren. And then, of course, you're out at three o'clock picking up the, other, the five-year-old back from school as well. So I was quite exhausted. And by Saturday morning, of course, it, the whole round started off again, stories time at 6.30. I was actually quite exhausted by uh, Sunday afternoon when our family came back from their nice little trip uh, overseas. Budapest is a very nice place, apparently. But uh, they did point out, we, looked, we saw them looking really chilled out, but they actually pointed out how unchilled I was looking. And I can, I, it was a great insight as a grandparent suddenly being thrown back in there with children like that. And I'm glad I did that. So is it 
work-life balance is a luxury or necessity. I do think it is a necessity, but we are going to have problems with this credit crunch. Every day now I'm hearing colleagues and friends and their family members losing their jobs or being about to be made redundant. We, we don't want, for our health, our mental health, it's actually quite good having a job, not, not doing too much work in the workplace. It's getting that balance right, but some of us may uh, not have the luxury of a job either. Uh, so there are problems. Certainly the credit crunch is going to cause it for us, but I, I think it is generally good to get a good uh, work-life balance. It's good for our mental and physical health. It actually reduces stress-related disorders, and that has an impact upon longevity. So I, I think... Uh, this uh, seminar and this meeting today has come probably at the right time for talking about these issues, but it's keeping everything in balance, which will be quite difficult, I think, with this credit crunch. Thank you. Stephen, thank you. Now, the next speaker is Justin Roberts. Justin once was an investment banker. I bet she's glad she's not doing that at the moment. <clears throat> she probably had a lot more fun writing about football and cricket for The Telegraph, and she's now the founder and MD of Mumsnet in addition to having 10-year-old identical twins, a 5-year-old and a 2-year-old, so beat that. <laughs> Justine. Um, I'm going to start with my dirty little secret you'll be pleased to hear. Um, my, the major inspiration behind Mumsnet, the thing that really swung it for us to start Mumsnet was because I wanted a job where I had some work-life balance. I'd been in the city and then I'd been a football reporter and a cricket reporter, and they were male-dominated environments. And basically, um, I saw people in those jobs who, who couldn't really admit to having children. It was a weakness. You just kept them very, very quiet. And you certainly didn't disappear off to the nativity play or anything like that, um, particularly if you're a woman. So I, well, I had twins, and I realised that wasn't for me. I needed to do something else. So I vividly remember trying to persuade my friend from antenatal class, Carrie, to come and join me in this mad venture. And what swung it for her was not, uh, oh, we're going to be at the vanguard of the internet revolution. It was, we will have our meetings in the jacuzzi at the local gym. Um, and and well, at the moment I said that, her ears pricked up and she thought, oh, that sounds like the job for me too. Um, so um, nine years later, we have manage one meeting in the jaguzzi at the local gym, but we have, I'm pleased to say, kept to the concept of family comes first and business comes second. That doesn't mean we don't, you know, tap away till the early hours, but it is a sort of um, almost an unwritten rule in Mumsnet. If you work for Mumsnet, you do not miss any child event, and hopefully we'll be able to keep to that as we go forward, because every day on the website we see how women are struggling to balance their work, their family, you know, obviously, as Stephen said, their affairs um, and everything else. And it's the everything else that's interesting, I think, because um, we've done a survey, we did a survey actually in tandem with the EHRC of our members, and it, it showed us what I think we probably all know, that if you take working men and women, um, working parents, it's still the women who are doing the bulk of the heavy lifting at home. They are the ones who are still cooking the tea, doing the homework, going into school to do reading and getting up in the middle of the night. We found that only 2% of men um, arrange playdates regularly for their children, um, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not making a point about, you know, um, men do nothing with children anymore. Clearly, they're much better. But the fact is, it's really hard being a working mum. And it's not surprising they feel the strain. And then... 
you know, the, add to that the guilt you feel as a working mum. Again, what came up in our survey is more than half of women who work feel guilty about leaving their kids at home. And I personally have recently had experience of this. I picked my two-year-old up, rarely, from nursery the other day, and he delightfully, on the back of my bike, sang me a little song. Um, and I'm not going to sing it now, but I, if I just tell you, it was to the tune of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And it started very nicely. It went, Mummy, 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 Mum. Mummy, mummy, don't go to work. <laughs> Which is like, stick the knife in. He's very advanced, he's only two, but I get that in. Um, so it's not surprising you see people like the mum on mum's dad who's got a PhD who was bemoaning the fact that the only job she can find locally um, that fits round her being able to pick her kids up and take her kids to school is as a cleaner. And she didn't mind really, except she's a lousy cleaner. Um, and it is a loss, obviously, to the workplace. Um, so you have this situation. You have women who are, who are working in an inflexible way, feeling terribly guilty, or you're losing women altogether to the workplace. So I guess the answer to the question, is it a necessity uh, or is it a luxury? I believe it's a necessity because I think miserable, guilt-ridden mothers are not good for families, uh, you know, speaking from personal experience. And I think um, losing these great talents from the workplace is not a good idea either. So, yes, it's a necessity. Meetings in the jacuzzi, I suppose, could be classed as a luxury, though. <laughs> Thank you. Now, our next speaker is the <clears throat> contrarian, I think. Um, Viv Grosskopf is a journalist, a commentator, and it says here, a bit of a feminist. She pretends to work a three-day week, but actually works seven days a week, and she doesn't believe in work-life balance. So why is that, Viv? Right. Well, I feel as if I, I, I'm going to be representing the, the voice of the self-employed here, um, because I think there's a very big difference between people who get to choose what they want to do whenever they want to do it, which is the boat I've been in for the last eight years um, since I took voluntary redundancy. Um, eight years ago, I've been working as a self-employed um, freelance journalist. And then there are all the other people who are basically, I think, holding someone else responsible, i.e. their boss, um, for the fact that they don't have work-life balance and how can this be and how lucky all these self-employed people must be that they have this work-life balance. And I always find it really interesting that there seems to be this myth um, that there is this great balance out there and some people have it and some people don't and there's this real sense of envy um, for, uh, for those who do have it. And I've heard um, people uh, on the school run in particular um, refer to me as oh, the queen of work-life balance um, because they have this idea that because you know, I, have, I use three days a week childcare, I have a nanny, I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old, um, and they think, oh, it's, you know, it's all right for you, you have your childcare and you have your time with your children, you've got it all. Um, and even people who know me quite well um, seem to think this. But people who know me really, really well see how it doesn't actually work this way at all. And really, there is no such thing as work-life balance. It's just that I've integrated work into my life so that I can choose when I work. But there's a big, big payoff for that, which is that really I have to be available ideally 24-7, particularly because I work for in newspapers. Um, so although I have this seeming you know, veneer of, of being the queen of the work-life balance, it, it's only because I, I'm often working um, uh, as um, 
Justine was saying, tap, tap, tap into the early hours. In inverted commas, as you said, family comes first, but in reality, there's always a payoff for that. Um, and there's two really interesting high-profile examples I wanted to give of the self-employed who have great work-life balance, in inverted commas, and terrible work-life balance, in inverted commas. And I think they both illustrate the fact that there really is no such thing. It's a really personal decision as to what you term work-life balance. And for some people, it will be imbalance. So the two examples I want to use are Sir Alan Sugar and Sarah Beanie, as in the property expert. Now, there was a brilliant documentary um, on Monday night um, where Fiona Bruce was interviewing Sir Alan Sugar. And as you can imagine, he is not king of work-life balance. And he admitted that the story about him signing a birthday card to his wife, which said, from Sir Alan Sugar, <laughs> is a true story, and that he's been trying to suppress her being interviewed for years so that she couldn't confirm this story, which she did. Um, and he also said that he had, by today's standards, been a very bad father and to his children because he never saw them. He was working throughout the week, and on weekends he was too busy to spend time with them. But what I thought was really interesting was that they interviewed his wife and all three of his children, um, a daughter and two sons, all in their 30s. And they've all worked in his company, and they have a huge amount of respect for him. They have great relationship with him, very, a lot of emotional warmth towards him. And it was very obvious that no one had really suffered from this terrible work-life imbalance. And that it, with it, for him and for his family, it was just what worked. So I think that you can draw the wrong conclusions sometimes about these things. So the second example I wanted to mention was Sarah Beanie, because she gave this hilarious interview um, in The Observer last weekend, um, where she was talking about what a great work-life balance she has, and she's so lucky because she's got it made. And she has uh, three boys, six months, age two and age four. And I, I want to quote exactly what she said, because I just love it so much. So this, this is her great work-life balance. I can't bear the thought of not being around for my children. I work strictly from 7.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. And I don't do any weekend jobs, even though I'm asked to do a lot. I think this was because my mother wasn't around. Her mother died when she was 10. This makes me feel I can't miss a thing. I want to remember every moment. I want to drink it all in and never forget it. And so she was vaunting her great work-life balance. And good for her, I'm not judging her. That works for her, that's great. But the reality is she works a 50-hour week. And even if her children go to bed at 8 in the evening, presumably they only awake for 12 hours a day, she's spending 15 hours a week with them. So I think it's really fascinating to think about this idea that work-life balance is not a fixed thing for everybody. For some people, work-life balance is going to be an imbalance. And I think that the uh, employers and employees can learn a lot from the self-employed, because the self-employed, as those two examples and my example show, they really don't live a life where work and life are separate. They're completely integrated, and often you can't tell them apart. And it's not a case of balance. It's not a case of seesaw. It's much more like a puddle. It's a mess where one thing is water, maybe that's life. One thing is mud, maybe that's work. Maybe it's the other way around if you prefer life, work to life. But it's just a mess. And the best thing to do is just to jump in and enjoy it. Thank you very much. Um, 
Well, Julia Hobsbawm needs very little introduction. I'm sure you all know Julia well, and she's our, our host here today, and she has her book, which I recommend you all go and get a copy of here out this week, and you've probably heard her um, promoting it very skillfully. Um, she's our final speaker. Julia's the founder and chief executive of Editorial Intelligence, um, if that isn't a contradiction in terms, the media analysis and networking firm. And it's got a unique database which summarises every line of comment published in the UK every day. It's been described as the smartest way to keep up with the world of comment. And Julia, give us your line on work-life balance. Well, I'm very pleased that our editor, Stephen Fleming, is here. He works flexibly and from home and begins our daily digest, I think, when he's completed his school run. So he is a perfect example of being able to have work and life balance. Um, I have a lot of luxury. I have three children and two stepchildren who are delicious almost all of the time. I have a job that I not only love but that I designed over a you know, 20-year career that I also adore and a team that I'm extremely lucky to have around me. I have a husband... A, at all, and B, that I love, and C, who has subjugated his career largely for mine. So luxury I have, although my daughter, who's eight, told me her luxury would be if I dyed my hair blonde, became a truck driver, and took the mole off my nose. So it depends what luxury is defined. They say the personal is political. Well, there's nothing quite as personal as what an eight-year-old girl wants. But... Um, my feeling is that we need to talk about this whole topic in terms of both the personal and the political, and we need to talk about it in terms of both women and men. Yes, the statistics and the evidence is overwhelmingly that women bear the brunt. You know, there's this outrageous statistic I can hardly bear to say, which is there is a 17% pay gap. Hello. You know, mad. But... I don't think we're ever going to get through any of this, this being the fact that if you have the luxury of working, you still have the burden of working and making it work around your life, outside of the frame of reference of both women and men. Now, what interests me as somebody that has a business and a family, or has a family and has a business, is, is productivity. Uh, I want to be a productive woman, mother, sister, daughter, blah, 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 and I want to be productive in business. And I think that uh, it is correct, I'm sure people around here will fact-check around me, but I think it is right that Britain is either the lowest in the league of productivity as a nation in Europe or pretty near the bottom. And I think there's a lot of evidence that productivity is linked to motivation. And I think there is a real crisis in motivation and fulfilment. What is undeniable is that culturally, I think we are all ready to go back into this discussion and debate about work-life balance. It is uh, sort of the new calorie counting. We are all in some shape or form subconsciously calibrating and counting and monitoring our own work-life balance. And by the way, I think that includes people with or without children. Again, in much the same way that I'd like this whole discussion to be framed around men and women, I actually don't like the distinction between working parents and people that don't have children. In my book, I interviewed a single parent who works in the NHS, which has more box-ticking, flexible working than you can shake a stick at. And I said to her, I bet it's a nightmare for your co-workers, and I bet they really hate you when you leave the office early. And she said, yeah. 
So that's the stuff we really need to come to, to grips with here. And part of the problem, of course, is that we are all having it all. That's what we're told, we're having it all. And what that means is that a, a combination historically of affluence, technology, feminism, a burgeoning service sector meant that we all have the luxury of working a lot. Maybe the next couple of years are going to see the downside of people not being able to work so much. But my goodness, it's a luxury to be able to work. And with it comes stresses and strains. And so part of what I wanted to articulate is, well, how do we ameliorate what are difficult circumstances? Um, Catherine Rake, the head of the Fawcett Society, sent me a text this morning saying, guess what, seesaw, work-life balance, my kid's ill, I'm not at work today, can't be with you. Um, so the have-it-all uh, generation, if you like, has to come up with some basic coping mechanisms. And part of that coping mechanism, I think, is to ditch the perfectionism, which has already been spoken about, but also to ditch the bitchiness. You know, I, I really applaud, um, she's here, Janice Turner's piece in The Times on Saturday saying, give Rachida Darty a break. For a start, we speculated more about who the father of her baby is than whether she was actually going back to work full time at all. I suspect she was going back for a photo call or a cabinet meeting. But all right, so in an ideal world, it is a pity that she might have felt she had to go back to work full-time. But, my God, feminism wanted us to have choice, so she's exerting her choice. Is it the right thing to say that you have to take an unbroken period of up to a year when your uh, child is, is, is tiny, rather than saying that we want the right to dip in and out of our children's lives and our, and our work? So I think that the consequence of having it all is a perfectionist culture, and the consequence of the perfectionist culture is a backlash culture. And the thing that, I mean, I could witter on about all the lovely, jolly, yummy mummy type messages in the book, and I think that it is worth sharing experiences on how to do it better. I particularly like the woman who says that she goes out of the house sometimes and leaves her mobile phone behind and it drives her husband nuts and her children nuts, but she says, it's not that long ago that we didn't have mobile phones. It is actually possible to leave the building and not be traceable, um, says the woman who twittered that she was on her way here this morning. But, I mean, I, I'm all for the, you know, exchange of recipes. This book was originally going to be called 100 recipes for work-life balance but what I'm coming more and more to the conclusion about is that it's got to be a marriage of the cultural and the political and the policy related. I'm very interested that there are two people from the Conservative Party here this morning and nobody from any other political party. I welcome any political party that tries to make sense of the sort of spaghetti junction of politics and policies around this issue. It is very unjoined up thinking. There is no correlation between the thinking about childcare and affordability, nursery availability, the relationship with schools and the relationship with the workplace. Uh, I am not uh, a politician, but you know there are some glaring, obvious inequalities, one of which is that by any yardstick, it costs any working person who is not on benefits at least £5,000 a year to have any kind of childcare under five. That's per child by any metric much, much lower than, higher than anywhere else in Europe. Another statistic is approximately 50% of people in this country take up flexible working. 
The Mums Net and the Equality and Human Rights Commission survey showed over 85% of people want it. I would like to see, um, don't groan, an ism, a new ism. I would like to see a flexibilism, which is a culture that says we need to get the logistics right and the politics right and the negotiation right. I'm not talking about Gaza. I'm talking about the reality that not all jobs are as flexible, not all needs are the same. If you go to your employer and say, I would like to work flexibly, and the Burr website has about eight definitions of what flexible is, what happens when that employer says no? Because actually at the moment, all of the political thinking is about the right to request. It's not even the right to have, it's the right to request. That's the debate. Is Peter Mandelson going to allow us to request time off when our children are up to 16 rather than six? Well, hello, what's that about? That's not real. That's, that's not actually saying, how do we make it work so that we produce for our employers, we produce for ourselves? And I'll give you one small example of non-joined-up thinking, it seems to me, is that apart from the overall paucity of data, which is, I don't think any meaningful statistics have come out since 2006, and before that was really a four-year gap to 2002, uh, I know that um, Nicola's... Uh, work, uh, flexible working study is coming out, but I think there probably does need to be a more wider inquiry. This is a small, tiny example. I've got more choice in tights, shoes, bank accounts than I do in childcare availability. Uh, I live in London. Two of our primary school children are educated in Camden in a state school. Our youngest is in a nursery in Islington. They're in adjacent boroughs. They have completely different school timetables. The, the big children are dropped off at 10 to 9 in the morning. The youngest's nursery slot isn't until 9.30. Now, actually, I'm a glass-half-full kind of a person. I have tea with my little boy two times a week and juice time and whatever obviously not when I'm having work-life balance and promoting a book about work-life balance then I ditch the children's school run but on on a good week I do a couple of school runs and you know why can't I have the right to punch in my slot like I can pay as you go with a mobile phone how difficult is it to get the logistics right in business you know, magazines like Fast Company are devoted to things like how do people queue in airports and how can we learn and watch from that to make the baggage drop quicker and the productivity of the airport better. This is nitty-gritty, minute stuff, but it makes the difference between delivering greater airport efficiencies, apparently, than not. Why don't we do that with childcare? Who is talking about not just the cost but the physical practicalities? There's more stress, I would suggest, about getting to work, getting from work, dropping off, having the pickup than anything else. And I would like to um, finish on a couple of points. One is that I think business and business thinking and the practicalities of business and management have a lot to teach the politicians and indeed the parents. Uh, I don't think I'm that much of a control freak, but being focused and applied about what success looks like has made a huge difference to my life, insofar as I have any work-life balance going up and down on my own seesaw. Being focused has helped me enormously. And the second point is this. You know, I love that old Joni Mitchell song about we're, we're on a carousel of time. Time is the, is the greatest, most precious commodity to us nowadays. But at the same time, we need to celebrate the fact that we've got a lot of things to do. 
because you know we're about to enter a period when a lot of people will not be in work they will be at home a lot with their children and that is not necessarily a good place to be so i think we've got a lot to celebrate and a lot of joined up thinking and uh, and a lot to do Julia, thanks. That's spot on, isn't it? Um, well, look, we're going to throw it open to the floor now, and um, if you have any points you'd like to make or questions that you'd like to ask of the, the panel, please do so. But I wonder if I might kind of kick it off by asking Nicola a, a question about the downturn and what effect that, that that's likely to have. Um, the worry, surely, is that... that, that that the economic crisis that we're in at the moment is, is not only going to mean a, a bad time for flexibility generally, n not just for the number of um, organisations that are willing to grant it, but for individuals who are potentially too terrified even to ask for it because they're worried about their employment and that might be the thing that makes it look as if they're not on side, not pulling their weight or what have you, that they're, you, they've got the gall to ask for a flexible arrangement. And if it's true that as the, as the research suggests that 85% of people want it, how do you see things developing over the next couple of years? Are we going to have an avalanche of tr tribunal cases? What, what, what actually happens if somebody requests it at the moment and the, the employer says no? What can the next stage be? Okay, big, big question. Um, the, the, I think the statistics show that um, of the vast majority of requests... Uh, for flexible working are actually accepted. It's differential whether it's men or women putting in those requests, but most of them are accept accepted. Now, I'm not saying there's not an issue about how could we um, generally find some way, preferably through informal mediation, uh, on those cases where it isn't accepted. Um, I do think that, you know, that's why one of the things I liked about Julia's tips, you do have to be, I think, for flexible working to work in a sustainable way, i.e. to keep going, you have to find a balance between what works for the individual and what works for the business. And by the business, I also mean the individual's colleagues. And one of the things that I worry about in terms of extending, and I, I, I agree with a lot of Julia's, Julia's caveats about how you describe this right to request, why you have to be given it, why can't you just ask anyway? But I worry about it being extended just to one group of workers because it stokes up all kinds of potential differential expectations in the mind of the employer or woman coming through the door she's going to ask for flexible working that's what I meant, that's one of the inconvenient truths. Equally sometimes colleagues in a work team say hey it's not fair, why does she always get you know, August off or whatever whereas if you actually sit a team down and say okay lots of people want different kind of work patterns, can we have a serious conversation about how to accommodate them um, that, that I think taking uh, a genuinely flexible approach to working, the informal agreement of often minor adjustments by all the team members about how, when and where they work. It's harder to, it's harder to reach agreement on, but once you get that agreement, it can last. Um, all that may sound a bit airy-fairy given what's happening outside in, the, in economic terms. I think the knee-jerk reaction, and I'm not just thinking about people who are glass half empty rather than glass half full people, but the automatic reaction is, oh, it's going to be expensive, can't, you know, we have to stop extending the right to request, you know, this isn't going to be a time for flexible working. I don't think in, uh, uh, in practice that either need to be, needs to be what's going to happen or actually will. There are increasingly examples out there 
of firms wanting to hang on to some skilled, valuable uh, people during a downturn who might say, what about a different mix of hours and training? Um, what about you know, a year's sabbatical, but we'll keep the job open? Um, I heard of an example uh, long before the economic crisis really hit of somebody deciding, after she'd had a second or third child, I really, really want more time at home. And the firm, instead of you know, getting all uppity about it, said, we're sorry you've made that decision. We think you're a really valued colleague. Any time in the next five years, just ring us up. We'll keep in touch with you informally. We won't pressure you, but we'll fast-track you back into employment. Now, is that a good deal for both parties or, or what? Um, I think there are lots of different ways of finding the kind of flexibility that could help businesses, and I'm really interested in what Viv said about self-employed, because obviously it's a, it's a different perspective, and I hadn't frankly thought about it uh, much, but I'm thinking particularly of large, medium-sized and small firms that could be a win for them and for the individuals. And it's just worth thinking through and taking the time to say, okay, is there a different pattern that would work for all of the people in this team and for the business? And that's why when there was some doubt about whether there was going to be a rolling back on extending the right to request, even though I personally don't think it should be ring-fenced just for uh, parents with, with children or caring responsibilities. No, we wanted to put up a flag and say, hey, this is not the time to take that sort of reaction. Think about it. It could be a plus. But do you think, from what you know of him, that you've got a sympathetic ear in Mandelson or not? I think that evidence on the ground, what businesses are actually wanting to do. Some of the, um, I don't want to give particular examples because I don't have chapter and verse to mind, but some of the big companies are saying, what about a combination of uh, a three-day week and some training? Some of the stuff that, um, some of the comments that have been made about government wanting to encourage that kind of kind of package. You know, I'm a glass half full person. I, I, I think there's, there's a way through here. Okay. Thank you. Well, do we have some questions from the floor? Camilla Cavendish from The Times. Um, I was very struck by Justine's story about why she set up Mumsnet and the desire to go to the nativity play without having to make a secret of it. And I became a journalist six years ago for the same reason. And what I effectively traded in at that point was a career in business and, and management for a role with no management responsibility, which is great because you just file your copy and you go home. Um, but at some point, and a lot of us have made those kind of decisions, at some point, we want to go back into management. But what, I, what really strikes me is there are a lot of women in their 30s who are resisting promotion. I mean, we're all sitting there, treading water, enjoying our jobs, but effectively resisting promotion. While at the same time, we're lucky enough to work in a world where men keep desperately trying to promote us. And you know, most of the cultures are very much about, you know, we want more women in senior positions. And I just wondered what you all thought about the issue of age discrimination, because it seems to me that a lot of women, talented women, ought to be going back into bigger jobs, older, and that that's, you know, late 40s, 50s, and that that is precisely the time when a lot of companies sort of think you're too old. So I just wonder what you thought about that. So Viv, Viv do you want to edit yeah. the Standard or the um, Guardian? God forbid, no. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I'm sworn off um, office work um, for life um, but that's just a personal thing but I, I absolutely I'm so glad you asked that question I think it's a brilliant question and it's something I think about all the time and I stress about it a lot because yes I agree there's so much promotion of young women in particular women in their 20s but then 30s 40s everybody's into this work-life balance myth 
or reality, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then 40s, 50s, 60s, where are all the great women, you know, and all the bordering problems in the financial sector and other sectors? I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, how do you get around this? I, I have no idea. I mean, I would be, you know, very rich if I had the solution. I'd go into management consultancy. Um, I know from interviewing lots of people um, who are working in uh, recruitment and headhunting that there is a resurgence of interest in this. And I've written quite a lot about women returners. Um, and I wrote um, a piece in The Guardian recently about this American novel called The Ten Year Nap which looks at um, these w women who have taken from very, very high-powered careers, taken time off for 10 years, and then trying to get back in. And I do think it's becoming part of the cultural debate in the US. Um, but whether it's coming over here quickly enough, I don't know. I'm um, Harriet Spicer, and I'm both from the Judicial Appointments Commission and Working Edge, a business that I run with another ex-publisher, um, which provides the resilience for people to manage all the ghastly cocktail of guilt, anxiety and envy that has been described to us this morning. And I do think that, curiously, having discovered I've now obviously had a 10-year nap. I never knew it, but it wouldn't feel like being asleep. But I left for Argo Press and, it kept, and you know, nearly 60 and have come back and both got public appointments commission... At, jobs in public appointments and um, started my own business. So I'm not rich as a result, I have to say, but it can be done. And I do think it's all about that personal resilience that we need because employers need it in order to not be fearful of the downturn and to make it an opportunity to stay creative. And they may well have had to work absolutely hard and therefore find it very difficult for others to have a different opportunity and similarly, you know, the Judicial Appointments Commission, I do know that the system, the system needs to respond. And one of our proudest achievements is more part-time, flexible working posts being offered. We can't control all the terms and conditions, but we very much want those to be offered to, to both, taken up by both men and women. And I think the system and the individuals need to come together in what is a horrendously complex challenge. Well, I'm uh, Professor James Woodhausen, and um, I just, I, I think the age, age side of things is w definitely worth exploring, but I wondered if I could just comment on so some of what the speakers have said. I, I can't really take seriously, although I've not recently read, Stephen, you have, that labour market trends, which is guaranteed to send anybody to sleep, but uh, I don't think the working week is increasing as fast as you might uh, suggest. I wondered if you come back on the on the numbers there. Um, I think there's more playing around at work uh, as well, which is why I don't buy this stress account that you have. We know that what the Americans call information fatigue syndrome, otherwise known as work, uh, is, you know, vastly exaggerated. And, you know, you only have to read George Orwell about going down a mine to know that there's very little stress today compared with what happened in the past. But I think there are three things that we might profitably consider on top of the age thing. The first is, I think Julia's entirely right uh, to say that there's a crisis of motivation and productivity at work, and that's why we tend to problematize work. I mean, 20 years ago we didn't talk about work-life balance, yet the stress was probably worse. Now we do, probably because management doesn't know where it's going. 
and that can demotivate people and then make them attribute many problems of everyday life you know, to work, which I think is uh, something that's happening there. Where I think Stephen was much righter, secondly, is that the, what Frank Ferretti has called paranoid parenting, right, where we've all got, uh, I appreciate if you're single, it's a different ballgame, but still, you know, the, the, the sense of guilt, which was our main industry in Britain for many years, uh, you know, is, is enormous and now compounded by New Labour's for 10 years campaign to make you into a better parent. And just going finally to, back to Julia, uh, it seems to me that, you know, you may remember the Rod Eddington report that said Britain has a wonderful transport system. And I think when we're talking about booking childcare and raising the IT coordination of childcare, having some childcare, cheap childcare, childcare in Britain altogether, I think the childcare is important and the transport question uh, and the IT question around it. We're very, very poor at that. I might add that a million rumbas have been sold in America, which are made by iRobot that, uh, you know, clean your floors. And I think there's a technological dimension. Well, uh, you know, we've, they've got a million. We've got none. I'm well aware of Ruth Schwartz-Cowan's work that shows that, you know, the leisure time doesn't increase as you mechanise the household. I can't we believe that those bloody things work, actually. No, no, they won't. They, they, uh, uh, Julia. Well, I think the technology point is really valid. At the doctors now... Uh, it is quite effective, certainly where we live, that you get a text message, you can sort of book your appointment online. My children's parents' evening, although, let's be honest, it really ought to be called parents' afternoon, should it not? But, you know, my parents, they still all come back with their little bits of paper and you have to fill in a multiple choice and then you have to hand it back in. And it's like, sorry, I'm more for spontaneity, but the old diary has moved on. So probably, you know, rather ruthlessly, I actually phone the teachers and have telephone tea rather than an appointment unless the kids need it. You know, sometimes you go a whole term and your child is flourishing and what's to discuss. Other times there's a problem and you've got to go in one-to-one. I definitely think these tiny little physical logistics matter hugely and um, you know never mind a computer in every classroom you know a, a pdf for every parent would would be a good start Stephen do you want to come back because you were at some of that was directed in your general direction wasn't it yeah well there's a number of different things there certainly I, I think uh, when you actually look at the stress research actually reframing things differently in hotels for example there's one study done where once the staff realized that actually the, the what they were doing was actually like a physical workout actually doing changing the rooms tidying up and everything their mental outlook changed they started losing weight and things like it's peculiar what research finds and all they've done is reframe the situation as actually it's good for your health so going back to the idea of having robots cleaning up around the house it's ludicrous actually it's quite good doing things around the house and in the garden for one's physical health I think as opposed to going down the gym and paying money which we probably won't have in the future with, with the credit crunch but picking up some specific points raised that the paranoid parenting I I think what's been lost with this paranoid parenting aspect is the uh, the other. The, the, the book talks about one F word, flexibility, which is important. Another very important uh, F word for parenting, being an employee, being a friend or a colleague, is fallibility. Accepting we're fallible human beings and we're going to make mistakes doesn't mean we're uh, we're failures as human beings. It's just in fact every time you fail at something, it's more evidence you're a fallible human being, not a failure. But we have this kind of failure kind of outlook on life, which causes so much stress for us and our children, because we start, uh, they start imbibing these ideas from their, their pushy, overachieving parents. So there's other aspects there, I think. 
going back down to the productivity and stress and things, uh, the health and safety executive have been taking this very seriously now for the past decade, and they've been doing much more research. I, I think in the 1990s they did research, but they didn't really help employers or employees know what to do with this research. But in the past decade, they've worked very hard at what's developing management standards so that managers and organisations know what to do when it comes to stress and how to deal with it. So I, I think that's probably helped to a certain extent stress levels coming down or reported levels of stress coming down. However, when it comes to productivity, this country does, for the um, head of the population, we do seem to be very unproductive. And we, we do, I think, suffer much more from presenteeism. Uh, we're actually in work, but we're not actually doing constructive work. And you can even see in some places I work in, yeah, the, the, um, the jacket or pullover is over the chair, but the member of staff is not actually there doing anything. Uh, so I think this presenteeism is another important aspect. We seem to be very inefficient, and when you actually ask people what they're doing in their spare time, well, in actual fact, they're actually spending some of their time doing their online banking and things like this. There's a lot of other personal aspects getting in the way of them actually working productively. And there's lots of issues that need to be dealt with there. It's one thing having been introducing flexible approaches and things, but are people being productive in that time? And often I find it's the perfect... When I'm counselling or coaching people, the key thing comes up is a personal element. I find the rigid perfectionists, the ones that often procrastinate, they fear failure. So instead of just getting down to the important task or job they're doing, what are they doing? They're doing a computer game. Oh, I'll have another coffee or another slice of toast if they're working at home. So as they get what we call discomfort anxiety that starts in their stomach, as they start getting uh, their perfectionist tendencies coming out, they do anything but face the task in hand. And, of course, that leads to more presenteeism. They're not working productively. We need to deal with some of the psychological elements, I think, to actually help people move on. Charlie, I think you had something. There is a thing about working less that actually work-life balance, which is not just about childcare, is actually a lot of us. I mean, I'm working less, but as productively as I did 20 years ago, having spent 35 years as a hack, I just made the decision to actually work less. And um, the other thing I was going to ask Justin, you mentioned that um, the guilt that you felt with your child saying this stuff on the back of the bike, I mean, how do you ever avoid that? Because you feel guilty because you're not there. So if you're not there, you're going to feel guilty. And if you, if you are there, you're not doing what you want to do, which is not be there. Well, I, 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 I think that is unavoidable. But at least, um, and I take your point also about um, work not being stressful. I mean, my work involves marshalling thousands of sleep-deprived, postnatally often depressed women screaming at each other. But it is far less stressful than many other aspects of my life. It's when you combine the um, other obligations that you're supposed to be doing. And I'm lucky in a way because, as I said, the reason I don't feel as guilty as I think many working mothers do is because if my kids are sick, I can leave with impunity. I don't, you know, clearly if my kids had worked their way, I would be at their beck and call 24 hours a day. But I actually think that's unreasonable of them. So that's how I manage that process. I mean, at the point where they sing, don't go to work, you feel a bit guilty, but you can rationalise that, I think. I think it's when people have to pretend their kids don't exist at work if they go to the nativity play. That's where the stress really kicks in, and that's why so many people leave the workplace. And how do you change that? I think the only way you change that is if men 
start asking for flexible working and start taking a bit more of the domestic burden on. I'm reminded of something Fiona Phillips, again, she's coming up a lot, said. She would, she, when she was doing breakfast TV, she asked year after year after year for a four-day week, but it was only when Eamon Holmes said from the sofa he wanted a four-day week that she got it. Uh, and I think, um, it, you know, we need to involve men in the argument and men need to be thinking about working more flexibly and then women will feel less guilt-ridden and stressed. My name is Linda Dubley. Um, all my life I've been a journalist on newspapers and television. Um, and like Viv, I had a bit of a light bulb moment when I was six weeks pregnant with my third child in the middle of a Macedonian refugee camp, which I was covering as a foreign correspondent. And I changed, really, to... Uh, thankfully, ITV's Tonight programme was extremely supportive, and I was able to work there for five years covering most of the stories that affected me as a mother. So the point about integration, I think, is a fantastic point. And the point about being sort of self-empowered and working as a freelance is a fantastic idea. So I think that what you do as an individual is really important and how you empower yourself is terribly important. But really I listened to what Julia said about policy as well. And at the end of the last year, I um, joined the list as an official candidate for the Conservative Party because I would like to see policy change. But I want to know what the panel thinks about how policy can change and what policy can be set up to try and help women because we can all be positive, we can all look at the glass half full, we can all try and empower ourselves, but until there's some kind of framework in a parliament where still women are so underrepresented, particularly in the Conservative Party, I have to say, what are we going to do about changing policy to support women? N Nicola, do you want to do that one yeah, first? Yeah, uh, and if I could link it back to some of the things that Harriet and Camilla said earlier about, so if you do want to go back in or you have taken time, time out, how do you do so given the expectations and what I call the definitions of success in the present workplace? I mean, I think your point, um, Linda, about representation is, is, is really key. I, don't, I can't prove a causal link between some of the things that have happened in Norway in terms of um, increasing by legislation the proportion of women on boards of private sector companies and the fact that they have had for a long time much more equal gender representation in their um, elected bodies. But it seems to me that you do absolutely have to build that democratic consensus for that kind of significant change. And a more equal representation is, is really crucial. Um, we've now got, building on the work of the Equal Opportunities Commission, a run of five years of figures. And this is principally through the prism of, of looking at, at gender. But we're starting to do it for other areas of equality as well. Um, women in positions of power and influence. And what are the trends showing us? And I think keeping the spotlight on that and showing that actually they are really slowing and in some cases the momentum for improvement is either going at snail's pace or going backwards is really important. And I think, as I say, building that, building that um, more equal representation uh, uh, in Parliament in our case is really, really important. Uh, but, but I think there's a link to, to, to some of the questions that, some of the issues that um, Camilla and Harriet were raising. Okay, so you decide you want a spell. Um, as a self-employed person, out, as I think Camilla said, out of the sort of management loop. What if you later change your mind, you come back, maybe in your mid-50s, something like that, and you think, okay, how do I get back into a different kind of career structure? At the moment, the definitions of success, i.e. what your career needs to have looked like in order for you to get to 
you know, the middle, the top, whatever, in any kind of profession, is very rigid. So it's partly a cultural approach. You know, you remember the, the surgeons who used to say about junior doctor's hours, I had to work 80 or 90 hours a week, they jolly well can too. Well, that was broken, but it took quite a long time. So I think there's something cultural about mindset, which means you absolutely have to involve men in the discussion, that says, do you have to have done all of these different things in order to qualify for a seat on the board, for example? Or are there different kinds of experience, a wider, a more flexible definition of success that could fit you for some of those, some of those kinds of jobs? And then the last bit I'd add to it is that, yes, it's cultural, but it's also it's about systems and processes, some of the boring things. What are the recruitment, the promotion, those kinds of arrangements? What are the... Uh, attitudes towards uh, flexible work, is it only women, only parents who are assumed can apply for me? Those things have to change. Stefan Stern uh, from the FT, um, father of two future chief executives, uh, no, no pressure. Uh, the older one announced this morning as we left for school that she was in fact the boss of the house. She wanted to remind her parents of that fact. And uh, the younger one, four and a half months old, who Shamefully, I have to admit, I probably haven't really looked at properly for a day or two. I noticed this morning has changed. Who knew that? They, they, they grow, and it's a miracle. Uh, as a brief question, um, do any of the panellists have any comments on the new ch chief executive of Yahoo announced yesterday, who we, in my paper we reported, I think approvingly, uh, that she works an 18-hour day? Julia? Well, I'm all for a bit of time stretching. Um, well, does she actually say, I mean, she just works, works, works. Well, then she's fitting the brief of elder, older people going back to work. Um, I, I don't really want to be judgmental on anyone and the way an individual might work. Um, I think the, the, the big policy question probably has to be, although... I'm sure someone will shoot this down, um, tax breaks on childcare. I mean, it just seems to me like that's got to be the beginning point. Um, the other issue that I wonder should be explored is this question about um, right, requesting from employers. Uh, at the moment, everything is front-loaded to maternity to the six weeks, leaving aside men, if you like. The, the woman carrying the child gets six weeks at 90%. Then it drops so that you're forced back into work early, blah, 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 unless you're on benefits. Um, and incidentally, I think the government is doing very laudable things at the very bottom socioeconomic levels. It's the working middle classes that are getting um, squeezed substantially on childcare and having to go back to work. And I wonder whether there isn't something more creative in the way that the special needs lobby with children have done with local authorities where in some cases you can now take your cash if you have a child with special needs and spend it more or less in the way that you want to across a range of services. Can't you decide to take 10% salary cut forever in order to have a 10% bandwidth of built-in flexibility. So it's not about saying I always want to take Wednesdays off, but it could be in this three-month period when Joanna needs me, I'm always going to take for I mean, I don't know what these solutions are, but it seems to me that we need to really put on the table 
every single permutation that could be considered and either knock it down or say, yeah, that, that one's a runner, that one isn't a runner. But just to come back to your point, Stefan, I'm actually in favour of a bit of workaholism. You know, sometimes my seesaw goes right down as far as the family, this week being a bit of a case in point. And other times I take the, 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 the foot off the accelerator at work and I feel that I can work less and... God forbid, take a day off. So, you know, that seems to me progress is when you don't have to be rigid either in an office or in the hours that you work. It's uh, if senior staff that at kind of board level work those long hours, it sets a bad role model for the other staff working with them, and that can cascade down an organisation. So I can think about other organisations I would name here. We've had staff at the top just like that, and it does breed this long hours culture. And actually, if you look at stress levels and life balance, obviously, that's when it becomes a problem. And people at the very top of organisation do set role models, and it does have an impact. Sarah Modlock, I'm a freelance journalist. Um, I have two very pristine cream sofas at home, which translates as no children yet. But most of my friends have children, and I try to be a very active listener and a very proactive, very proactive in my support for them. And they're a very mixed bunch. Some are back at work, some have incredibly stressful jobs, some have had depression. But the, um, the brick wall that I've come up against is those who fall into the category of what I can only, in an uneducated guess, um, think is uh, separation anxiety. So they're not the earth mothers who love their children, want to spend every minute with them because that's their fulfillment. They're not the ones who are um, trying to spend more time with their children because that's what they think they should do and it's out of duty. They actually would turn down Stephen's offer um, of a weekend away because they think it will damage their six-month-old or their two-year-old um, to be apart from their parents. And this, this applies to offers of babysitting from in-laws, friends, mothers, and I just wondered how common that was. Just let me come round and change a couple of nappies on those sofas and I'll sort them out. <laughs> <laughs> well, about Justine on that one? Well, um, I think um, they sound completely bonkers. <laughs> um, but, no, um, no, I mean, I, in all seriousness, I think particularly working mums, there is a phenomenon of working mums and dads to some extent that off time is time for the kids because you know there is no time for anything else um, and um, you see you know a lot of people who who actually they have nothing else in their life they either work or they have their family um, in, a, in a, another result from our survey said that 72% of mums never do anything for themselves that doesn't involve their kids or their partner being there they never have any time off. So I think um, it's not that surprising um, because of this whole pressure, anxiety. You know, I've got to teach them Mandarin by the time they're age four, um, which, again, is part of the culture, not helped by the government giving us five things we must do, you know, different five things we must do every week um, to be a good parent. So um, I think it's... Don't be too harsh on them. You know, they'll grow out of it by number two. Uh, Shirley Soskin from Silverhawk Partners. I uh, set up a business because I tried to work flexibly as a senior professional and couldn't. Therefore, I set up a business helping other people to do so. Um, and there have been some fantastically good points raised by the panel. Um, we go into businesses. 99.9% of our clients have all the policies and practices in place, but very low take-up. And something like 80% of all uh, flexible working arrangements are made informally. 
and those are the ones that work. Um, I think the most successful examples from the panel are all entrepreneurial. And clearly, if you set up your own business, you're in charge of your own agenda. Um, but Viv raised a very interesting point, which is about responsibility. And what we teach our clients about is making people responsible for how to use flexible working effectively. What happens if everybody wants Friday off? What happens in the holidays? Um, and really trying to change culture and to change policy. And in this economic circumstance, really to get people to work more effectively, not five days work in, in three because it's economic, otherwise you're going to lose your job and clearly there's a lot of that, but really culturally trying to, to change uh, so it's going to be a combination of economic forces, cultural uh, desire to change and the politics and I too am on the Conservative candidates list but can you run a business and bring up two children and fight a parliamentary seat the answer is no, you know it's just not doable so in order to achieve the integration that I think that uh, we, we do all uh, go for, that something has to give. There is always compromise, but it is about responsibility. Okay, well, thanks, everyone. I was talking the other day um, to the outgoing head of HR at our organisation. We're about, I think, 2,000 souls in, in London and, and have um, stuff in the States and Europe and, and the Far East as well. And he... He told me that, I, and I think I've got the figure right, that the turnover rate for um, being a publishing company, obviously large numbers of people working on the sales side, was something between 30 and 40% over a couple of years. And that we have the orthodox um, method of hiring usually graduates at the age of, sort of 21, 22 at, at the very bottom. And believe me, that is one hell of a tough job selling space on magazines and websites, particularly at the moment. And he was going and, and on to another job, and he was saying well, one of the final things he was going to say was that you've just got to change this policy and realise not only that it's, it's costing you an absolute fortune replacing those people with the frequency that you have to at the moment, but what about those people who are in their late 30s, 40s, 50s, who've had experience, who've done it before, could, could work flexibly, have all that much more life experience, which is a vital part of the selling skill as well. And, th and this was greeted with a complete amazement by um, our organisation. And, and, you know, if, if, if I was going to be publisher rather than an editor of my magazine and I was choosing people who I wanted to kind of represent me to um, out there, I'd, I'd choose kind of more mature people who would likely to be triply productive and understand what we're up to all, you know, any time. Anyway, um, I, just, I think it just shows that despite the fact that we've been kind of banging away at it for as long as we have, we still have an awful long way to go, although we're getting there bit, bit by bit. But I think that it is going to be tough over the next few years, and I think there is going to be that anxiety that people inevitably are going to feel that even if they're having the most kind of god-awful time making everything fit and work, that their fear of actually daring to go forward and saying, well, you know, please, could I maybe work a bit more flexibly is going to be seen as a kind of a black mark against them. And that's a, a, a really awful thing and not in, in anyone's um, interest in the long run. Anyway, look, thank you to all our speakers. Don't forget the book. Go out and get it. Tell your friends. Um, thank you to everyone and for you to coming as well. And as I said, you can listen to what I think on the Editorial Intelligence website. And now. on yours, and on Cass's, and on Mom's there. It's on our, and the it's link on. everywhere. Well, thanks very much. Thank you.